Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Rovic. Hello. Hi, Jeremy. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show, especially because we are both podcasters and we're both interested in podcasting as a subject. So I'm sure that's going to be a lot of fun conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad you brought me on. And, you know, when you asked me between Zoom and Clubhouse, of course, I had to say Clubhouse just to take advantage of the fact that we basically live on this app. We live on this platform. I swear I have a life outside Clubhouse. <laughs> I'll, I'll pretend I believe you. <laughs> you pretend. Okay, I'll pretend that you believe. I pretend that you do believe in me. <laughs> I did take a staycation for a week and it was explicitly no Clubhouse. Yeah. So that was an interesting dynamic. Okay, we're going to go into Clubhouse and all things uh, juicy about what we've discovered about podcasting and Clubhouse along the way. But for those who don't know yet, Tell us a little bit about yourself, Rovic. Yeah. So I guess as an identity, I like to think of myself as a seeker, tinkerer, and dreamer. What that means is that I like to play around, innovate, try different things. I am passionate about a couple of key areas. I'm passionate about media and content creation. I think the ability to tell stories is a powerful way to connect people and to, to build communities, which brings me into my second key focus, which is communities. I I think communities are a strong unit of society. They really mobilize people. And I am passionate about creating spaces where communities can thrive and, and really build for one another. And the last thing I'm passionate about is technology. I think technology as a tool can lower so many barriers and can really make things accessible for more people. And so can you tell us a little bit more about your recent podcasting journey? So I guess to your question of what I do, I do a couple of things. So I have a day job uh, with the Singapore Economic Development Board that's focused on bringing investments into Singapore and creating good jobs for, for Singaporeans, which I truly believe in. I think it, it shapes our future. It shapes the livelihoods of a lot of people and it gives people a, a, the baseline necessities in order to be able to live life well, right? But beyond that, I think I'm also interested in and what it means to live in Singapore, what it means to be a Singaporean, that identity. And again, you know, going back to the topics of community, about media, about storytelling, I decided that rather than just be a passive consumer of all these things that are happening online, actually, how can I be a creator? And so, I, you know, I've been listening to podcasts like Stuff You Should Know, like How I Built This, which are very Western American podcast and i love what they do and i was thinking actually what would that look like in a singaporean context or an asian context so when i came back i realized that there's all these acronyms and all these black box concepts in singapore right so you know how does hdb work how does cpf work what is racism what is the gig economy and i was very curious i'm, I'm as, a, as someone who is passionate about these topics i was already doing a lot of research and trying to understand it and as i was doing that i realized hey actually applying this principle of not being a passive consumer, what would it look like for me to, to create content for other people as well? So I decided to work with my good friend, Willie, back then. So Willie was, is, is a business partner for an existing social enterprise I have called The Hidden Good. And I just told him I want to do a podcast. 
he being the good friend that he is said sure i'll co-host with you and so every episode we basically take a singaporean topic we do the research we unpack it and we put narrative lens to it so our first episode was public housing right so we told the story of how public housing came to be what are some of the principles and then we we also use that as an opportunity to maybe challenge certain assumptions so we say this was basically a principle that someone back then had or this was you know some person's vision but actually if you could create a new vision if you could challenge that principle what then would public housing look like or what then would a singapore without racism look like or what would a fair economy that treats freelancers well look like and so that's the kind of angle that sg explained the podcast takes so sg explain really is a, what i call an explainer podcast every episode we take a, an aspect of singapore identity and we unpack it so when you think about explaining stuff why do you want to explain stuff i mean <laughs> a lot of people want to describe stuff a lot of so want to talk about themselves but it's interesting because you're trying to like you have to do the research you have to like get deep you have to have come up a point of view so why do you want to dig into stuff so this is a very singaporean angle but i'm sure it can be applied to different contexts as well i think in singapore we take a lot of things for granted right so we take the public housing infrastructure as a given we take the way our society functions in terms of race and religion as a given and a lot of that is is intentional right and you'll realize this when you listen to the podcast some of these infrastructures that are in place they are meant to be hard infrastructure and the reason for that is when you create hard infrastructure people operate within that infrastructure rather than to try to change that infrastructure right so if i was to basically say this is public housing there is no other options beyond the private housing sector people just have to play within that right they have to bto they have to think about how to get their loans etc but the moment you start to challenge the principle actually what are alternative types of housing what are the principles underlying the fact that public housing is a basic route that a lot of people take then you start to you start to create space for people to ask or to ideate alternative propositions right and i think when you think about the future of singapore that is what i'm excited about can we be critical thinkers can we ask ourselves what would a future singapore look like in a way that really embodies the principles of now in order to do that we have to be critical about about the stuff that exists so rather than describing stuff the reason why we call it an explainer podcast is when we take the narrative element when we put the story behind the facts and when we connect the dots we're hoping to really illuminate a lot of these things and challenge a lot of the the preconceived notions behind things I was just kind of curious who's the kind of people that like that stuff, right? Is it is it people who want to be critical? Uh is it like people who are kind of like curious? Is it people who like history? Like who's the type of people that enjoy that explanation that the the lake work that you're doing? Yeah, I so when we look at our audience demographics, it's quite interesting. So our core audience is between 25 and 35. and actually quite interestingly 60% of our audience is from singapore which means that 40% of our audience is not from singapore so there's a good amount of people out there in the world who are curious about how singapore works either as a point of reference probably right maybe because they they want to understand how their countries or how their systems compare to singapore or maybe they are part of the singapore diaspora right so now they are somewhere else and just wanting to keep in touch with or what's going on here in terms of like the characteristics and personalities based on the community that we've managed to interact with yeah i think it's really within that category of people who are critical curious fundamentally trying to understand 
uh, our identity as well. And so, yeah, we also try to keep it broad. So, you know, we've done episodes on like esports, we've done episodes like tattoos, we've done episodes on like Prata. And the reason for that is because we want it to be as accessible for everyone. It's not meant to be a highbrow intellectual podcast. In fact, with Elliot, my new co-host, or rather my co-host since like two years, he, Elliot and I, we have a very good dynamic where, you know, when he gets too deep into stuff, I'm really the ignorant one. And I'll be like, I really don't understand what esports is. Or on the other hand, you know, when we talk about certain topics that I'm maybe a bit more uh, exposed to like economic principles, then he will, he, he actually plays the role of, you know, the audience who may not understand it. And, and so that gives us a good dynamic as well. So what was interesting was that when you mentioned Elliot, he actually turns out to be someone, a YouTuber I had watched for a while under the Tree Potatoes or the Wah Banana brand, where he acted as a relatively unsophisticated person, I would say. And it's surprising, and it was surprising to hear him being so sophisticated as a podcast host. So I thought it was an interesting uh, gap between my public eye persona of him versus the reality of who he is. I mean, that's basically the range that he gets to play, right? Which is, it just speaks to his uh, caliber as a as a performer, as a content creator. So I knew Elliot also from the YouTube days. So the Hidden Good was a YouTube channel I started back in 2013. It was a social, so we did social experiments back then. And it was also meant to be slightly subversive, right? So we were watching Stomp. Stomp is this online news media portal where basically they were, you know, citizens could post all kinds of stuff. They were posting quite negative stuff. So they were basically, you know, naming and shaming other Singaporeans. I felt that that wasn't a very fair representation of who we are as a society, who we were as a culture. And so the hidden good was really meant to be a counterpoint, all right, a, a counter movement. We wanted to show the good in Singapore. And so when we started doing YouTube, just like how we did podcasting in the early days, we were early movers in YouTube. And so when we reached out to Wall Banana, Aaron, Elliot, and Janice, they were very receptive. They said, yeah, let's talk, let's hang out. And that's the beginning of our friendship. So since then, we've been on the same journey. Elliot now has his own company. He's doing digital marketing and digital content creation. And so we've been keeping in touch. And when, when he heard about the podcast that we were doing, he was, he's also super passionate about these topics and so he decided to join us wow that's thanks for sharing that that's how it happened so it wasn't like a serendipitous thing but actually a long relationship actually yeah yeah I'm, i mean i would hope that that people can also hear that in in the conversations that we have right where it's like elliot and i are really good friends and one of the key reasons why we do it because as you would know jeremy the podcast scene is not very monetizable right now in singapore there are some bright spots but for the most part it's still growing and Elliot and I really do this as a passion hobby, as, a, as, as something that we really believe in. So our friendship is what sustains it more than anything else. It's interesting. Well, there's a couple of threads to go through it, right? So one is obviously is the Elliot route. I guess me, I'll just finish the Elliot route. And then obviously we'll talk a little bit about hidden good and stomp and I guess cancel culture, right? <laughs> so does Elliot get recognized on the street? I'm just kind of curious now in my back of my brain. Yeah, so, so he does get recognized back in the day. In fact, it would be quite annoying because we, you know, we'd be going out to like restaurants or like even back then we'd go, we'd be going to clubs, right? Pre-COVID, people would always stop and take photos with him, and it's always like the young kids. But now, now less so, I think, because he's he's a bit more off-screen. 
it's once in a while and it will always be like one of the older folks that re- remember him so probably you Jeremy probably you would be his target audience uh or not target audience but the kind of people that would like come and take photos with him <laughs> now you make me feel like an old fat right <laughs> <laughs> so you know when you talk about time as uh hidden good uh, let's talk about those early days right so i know Chen, she was also a part of the journey for hidden good as well i think it was interesting because you shared it was like a counterpart to stomp right and one thing that was interesting and i was reflecting on this recently was like in singapore there used to be this thing which was remember i don't even remember it was like oh we're gonna stomp you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like if you do this you get stomped when i was in national service then if i was like I wouldn't like sit on the chair because I was worried I'll get stomped because I don't remember there was like this time when some poor guy was like sitting in a chair and then the person was like stomped the guy and was like, hey, this guy didn't give a seat. But actually the whole train was pretty much empty. (laughs) So anyway, it was very much like a lot of like shame or online mob behavior, right? With the stomp thing, which is not necessarily, I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing, but it just existed, right? As a verb. It was the early days of online cancel culture. Yeah, you're right. And it was it was very frustrating because so I, I started the Hidden Good when I was in the army, right? And this was when I was one of those people who was asking myself, like, why why is it such a big deal that someone in an empty trade, right? In a completely empty trade, that people have such an anger when someone sits in the reserve seat, right? Or when someone sits anywhere. Right. Basically, there's this, this, this set of boundaries that, that we're starting to draw. And I, so I was very curious about it. And rather than try to focus too much on the negative, I was thinking, actually, maybe we need to subvert that narrative. Right. So now, in retrospect, after going, going through some training around ontology and, and, and systems thinking, I can explain it better. But back then, I think what, what we were really trying to do was to say, what if we were to tell a different story? Right. And what if we were to allow people to live that story? in such a way that they can realize that there's good in them. So here's a comparison, right? The reason why the Hidden Good started, the reason why we started doing this was because I was in a train with Leon, my co-founder, and we were, you know, we had just finished drinks, we were on our way back home, and we were in a packed MRT train, right? And it was literally like we were like shoulder to shoulder. And what we saw was that the reserved seat was empty. Right, it was completely empty. No one was willing to sit on the reserve seats, and we recognized that there was such a culture of fear that people did not want to to be called out. People did not want to to be in that identity where they could potentially be called selfish or irresponsible or whatever. And so we realized that that topic in itself said something about Singapore, and we wanted to subvert that narrative. So we did a lot of experiments in between, but a year after we started, we felt ready to to do the experiment that actually we had originally planned for, which was we went into the MRT, we took a chair, and we we printed out a sign that says NSFs only, right? Because that that was the big conversation, right? That actually, if the the people who least deserve to sit on these seats are our armed forces or our service personnel because you know they're meant to quote unquote serve our country therefore they should they should endure pain which is a completely illogical idea and so we said okay if that's what society believes let's subvert that narrative and let's create a chair just for them right because if you say the core infrastructure public infrastructure is not for them we will create infrastructure for them instead and so we put that seat there it was a fascinating experiment 
because even when we put that seat, NSF still did not want to sit, right? And so it go, it went to show it wasn't just about physical infrastructure. It wasn't just about physical seating. It was a social infrastructure. It was a normative infrastructure that was preventing people from actually participating, right? And when that happened, actually, what was interesting was that even before we released our video, some people had stomped it. So it was super ironic. Some people had stomped it and basically it went viral by itself. For good reason, people were basically saying like, oh, it's good that someone is trying to do this. But then when we put out our video, I think we, we rode on that wave a lot more. So that subversion of narrative that, that ability for people to really potentially play a new role in this story is really at the core what the Hidden Good was doing. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? So do you think you succeeded? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah. Tell us more. How do you think you succeeded? So the conversation online changed. So back then when we, when we had started, the conversation was, if I was to give like a, a simple assessment, it would be like 80-20 80 negative, 20 positive, right? So if something happened, 80% would be just online vitriol. And 20% would be like, actually, can we see the good in this? Or can we see the opportunity in this? Or can we have hope beyond this, right? Now, I feel like the conversation is more balanced. I feel like more people are, are speaking truth. More people are sharing perspectives. And then in terms of the infrastructure and ecosystem, you have more people who are out there trying to spread positivity and more people trying to hold space for others. Right. And so as from an ecosystem perspective, I think the hidden good played a huge role. And to this day, when I tell people I'm from the hidden good, there have been people who've come to me and, and I'm very privileged to, to hear this and, and I'm very thankful for it. There are people who have come to me and said, actually, a lot of the stuff that we did, whether it's in our uni projects, whether it's some of the, the stuff I'm doing in my organization, or whether it's even their own social enterprise was inspired from the hidden good. I mean, hidden good amongst many others, but the hidden good was called out. And so I, I think that to me is success, because if you remember, we started this as a project. We started this as, as an initiative. And so for that amount of, of just an effort to, to cascade down so, so widely, I think to me, I'm very proud of that. And I'm very proud of the, the people that we work with, the communities that we brought together. They were a huge part of this because Leon and I, what we realized very quickly was that we just want to build a platform, right? And actually, the young people that come on the platform, they are the ones that are championing a lot of these messages. No, I totally get it. I think you guys have done an excellent job between Jeja and yourself. And I know you all have innovated in building, I think, a bottom-up initiative, right? To do something different about this. I feel sometimes it's like it's a drop in the ocean, right? I mean, <laughs> compared to the Facebook algorithm, right? The Instagram algorithm, or like the echo chambers and stomping hasn't left us. I mean, of course, it still exists in some form, but now it's, I guess, rigid to some extent and cancel culture, right? Those are all like and doxing and things like that. So maybe it just feels like it didn't go away. It just changed <laughs> into a different name, right? And different forms of it. You know, at least people who stomped it never really doxed that much <laughs> because they didn't know how to dox at that time. Yeah, I think that's a fair evaluation of things. I also think in a similar hidden good style, we need to recognize that alongside some of these evolutions, there's also been evolutions in a positive space, right? So a very good example is in Clubhouse. You can see that as much as there are spaces where maybe someone says a racist comment or maybe where someone starts like pushing out quote-unquote fake news around COVID vaccines. Uh, there are also amazing spaces where people are holding space for people to talk about mental health, 
there are also amazing spaces where people are talking about like the Tudong issue, right? And that goes to show that there's a counterweight, right? And so while we can recognize that doxing and cancel culture is pervasive, we can also recognize that actually there are spaces being created that were never there before. Literally, with the, with the rise of the internet, with the rise of social media, there's also been immense potential for good to be done, right? And so the question is, how do we minimize the harm while maximizing the good, right? Or maybe more holistically, how do we create systems that are able to, to allow people to have differing opinions, but for the system itself, to call out and basically say like, okay, like this is not going in the right way. How do we bring people back into the fold? Because what we don't want is polarization. What we don't want is for all these people who maybe are pushing out fake news or maybe being racist to feel like, okay, actually now that people are, are having this new value system, I don't belong anymore. And then they start to form a faction, right? Actually, what we want to do is healing and reintegration. How do we educate them, bring them back into the fold and make them contributing members of society again? So I think there's a lot of opportunity happening and it's very easy to fall into that trap of basically saying like, oh, the world's doomed and to just give up. But I think we have to recognize opportunities and how we can hold systems better. Okay, so there's, there's two conversations we're having, right? One is the conversation of what we discuss and the second conversation is how we discuss it, right? If that makes sense, right? So, so I think you and I both agree, like I think there's a wide spectrum of opinions that anybody can have on any given day, right? Yeah. Is this Takwitiao good? Is this Takwitiao bad? Right. And, and then we scale it up a little bit more. You know, we have people who super love it or super hate it. Right. And then, so there's one dimension of like what we're discussing. And then I think the second axis is how we discuss it. Right. And I think that's a really interesting dynamic because you and I are both content creators. And we also get to see how other people are discussing, aligning, rallying people around content and issues. So I'm just kind of curious, I mean, from your perspective, like, obviously we're all good with the gentlemanly stuff or whatever you want to call it, right? We were wearing boxing gloves and we were like, good morning, Rovic. Today, shall we have a duel <laughs> over X topic, you know? It's going to be like, oh, that's totally fine, right? But I feel like there's a quadrant, right, where it's more like, oh, like, it ends up not being about a topic, but it's like how we fight, right? And to some extent, you know, that is also a cultural relative, right? Like, what's how we fight or how we debate is in Singapore, I think there's a norm of, you know, a very British parliamentary over tea. It's a logic, a rational perspective, right, for example. And then, of course, we've seen the American components, you know, dramatic, so, so forth, generalizing massively here. And of course, there's like what we consider like the internet crowd, right, upvotes and deeds, right? So I'm just kind of curious how about how you think about that. So I think we're talking here about holding spaces and how we have conversations. So... At any point in time, there are multiple conversations happening. So for example, right now between you and I, Jeremy, I can name three conversations, right? The first is the conversation we're having between one another. That's the most salient. The second is a bit less obvious, but still obvious. It's the conversation we're having as a performance, right? And everything is, sometimes everything is performative towards the audience, right? And that's not just the clubhouse audience, but including for your eventual podcast listeners, right? But the third conversation we're having is actually intro conversation, conversations we're having with ourselves. And a lot of times what's happening in conversations is that we need to recognize what's happening. So for example, in a conversation between two people, I can set up the container to be, to say, okay, I want to talk about our relationship, you and me, Jeremy, about how we see race, for example, 
and we, we talk about it, but the idea is about connection, the idea is about understanding one another. Now, on the other hand, what can happen very easily, and this, this happens in a lot of conversations, is that the conversation shifts to a, an intra-conversation. So for example, let's say we're talking about race and suddenly some person gets it very flat up. Actually, the conversation that they're having is not with you, it's with themselves because they've, you've, basically what's happened is that a boundary has been crossed, right? For example, something that maybe uh, happened in your past, uh, you've triggered it or something that where the conversation went, basically opened that up. And so they are basically trying to deal with the fact that that boundary has been touched and they're working on that boundary, right? So a lot of times when you hear someone say like a racist comment, there's something in that past or something in that person's history that's basically opened that up for them. And so if you try to make it a conversation around big picture topics, like, oh, like someone's racist, you start to, you start to say like, oh, like you're a racist, you're a pig, whatever, that person doesn't connect because what that person is dealing with is his own shit, right? He's dealing with something that's happened in his past and that doesn't validate what he thinks, but it explains why he's saying that, right? And so actually the powerful thing to do is to shift the conversation, right? Rather than focus on like, okay, what you said, is, is racist and horrible, we can go back to, okay, I want to understand where that's coming from. Why are you saying that? And let's talk about that, right? And now, of course, there are certain situations where everyone's listening, then we need to recognize that there's a third conversation, which is a conversation that's happening for everyone else. And so whatever that person said could hurt someone else. And so you also need to deal with that conversation, right? How do we make sure that the system knows, that the audience knows that that's not right? And so you need to close that while at the same time dealing with this person's conversation with himself. So there's so many things happening at once. And as a facilitator or as a person who understands human systems, a masterful person, and you'll see this, right? When you see major, major people like Gary Vee or Simon Sinek or, or even Brene Brown, what they're doing is to really manage all those different conversations that are happening, manage all those containers that are happening, but focus on, on where the pain is. So I think when we look at what's happening in society, right, it's a, it's a lot of conflation, a lot of, of people trying to speak past one another, when actually we need to recognize actually what are we trying to target and how do we manage the different conversations that are happening. Sounds like a lot of work, Rovik. <laughs> it is a lot of work. I mean, it is a lot of work, right? Cause so Because you and I are both saying like, okay, we can do this. You know, we're having the self-awareness, we're having the conversation, we're, we're aware about the other person's self-conversation and we work hard as facilitators. Heck, we're even in this club because, you know, I think Clubhouse rewards good moderation and good facilitators and facilitators unite, I guess, <laughs> on this app. So that's how we know each other. It's just that, isn't it just like easier just to be like top down on this whole thing and just like not discuss this stuff? And what I've heard about the Singapore system around these topics versus China, right? And I remember I was uh, in Singapore, my friends and I were discussing, we said, you know, I think the markers are, you know, they call it the OB markers, right? Are you can say your religion is the best, but you can't name which one is better, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the, you can say X is the best for ABC. You just, you just can't compare it to somebody else, right? Otherwise, that's, that's a clear cross into the OB marker or out of bounds, right? Well, within the Singapore context, religion is seen as a private issue, meaning that you're allowed to say, this is the religion that I believe is right for me, but you're not allowed to say, this is the religion that I believe everyone in Singapore should follow, right? And it's the delineation of private public. So we did a, an episode on Islam in Singapore, and that was where I had to like navigate this a bit more. So I was a bit like, I had to like figure out what does it mean 
for like something to be a private issue versus like a public issue, right? And that's a distinction. So, for example, Muslim marriages are private issues, but then stuff like criminal law, for example, those are considered public issues. And so, you focus on civil law, civil law for that, or criminal law for that, the public uh, established legal system. But for Muslim marriages, because it's a private issue, you're allowed to use a Sharia court, right? So, in a similar way, there can be such delineations depending on the context. Yeah, no, I I totally get it, and you know, growing up in it, I don't I don't blink at it at all, right? And then, of course, we have the American standards, which I think we all know about. I think it was interesting on the other end of the scale. I was in China and on exchange, and I remember one of the briefings that we had up front was by a police officer. He was just kind of like educating us on local law and so so forth. And the thing that stuck up for me was, you know, just paraphrasing what he was saying uh, and translating as well. But what he said was basically like, it's okay for you to believe, but it's not okay for you to spread that belief. Uh, and I thought that was such an interesting formulation of what was possible in the bounds of personal belief and practice, right? And I went home and <laughs> thought about it, wrote it down, and it was just an interesting formulation, right? What do you think about that, Rovic? Yeah, so within Europe, for example, and I think parts of the US, there is this, I don't know if it's a law or regulation or some sort of a boundary where you are allowed to be available for someone to come to you. So on the streets in Europe, you'll see people who stand on street corners and they'll have brochures, right? They say like, Jesus is the way, for example. And they are not allowed to go up to someone and say, hey, I want to talk to you about God. But they are allowed to be on the street corner in case someone wants to come up to them, right? So that's all they can do. They can be available for someone to come up because then it's that person's choice in order to cross that boundary and come there to you. Right in Singapore, I think there is a bit of a of a gray area here, and gray areas exist in all societies where you are allowed to evangelize and proselytize, and but it's to the extent that you do not force, or right? you are not allowed to. I, I think it's normed in some ways. I'm not sure if it's a legislation, uh, so this is a, I don't know, but it's normed that that you don't like tell someone you are wrong, I am right, right? And you basically say this is what I. Believe in, and I want to invite you to understand what I'm believing in, and hopefully you believe in that too. But it, it's slightly different from the European context, which is basically like it has to be someone else coming to you before you can start working with them. So it, it goes back to this aspect of boundaries, right? How porous do we see boundaries, and how hard do we want to keep these boundaries in place? And so I think the reason why we're discussing this is because we're discussing like online speech, and then obviously the cancel culture to some extent. And then we talked about one approach has been like in Singapore, for example, and in many places of the world, kind of like religious speech being very tightly bound, if that makes sense, right? In terms of what's acceptable way to discuss stuff, right? In that sense, right? Uh, what you just described was how to how to discuss. But I think it's, it's this gray bucket called everything else <laughs> on the internet, right? Which is interesting range, right? And I think what's also interesting is that all these conversations used to happen at the national level, if that makes sense. But now there's so much, using your word here, porousness across the world, right? Like culture issues that are to some extent in the States or in Europe are coming to Singapore, right? Or at least made other way around is like, you know, we're picking up a lot of concepts from all across the world, right? China and the States in terms of consumption and uh, discussion and debate, right? 
So it's interesting to see like a lot less homogeneity, more heterogeneous spread. I don't know if that's a fair assessment. What, what do you think, Rovik? Remember in the middle of like COVID and then there was this uh, one lady who got arrested because she refused to wear a mask and she, her key defense was uh, she was a sovereign citizen. And I think that made me sit up, right? Because I was like, whoa, like this concept does not exist, <laughs> did not emerge from Singapore, right? This is a very specific phrase, right? It comes from the States, which is not necessarily a problem in itself, right? Lots of concepts come in the States, but it's a very American-centric perspective, philosophy, movement. And as someone has made that consumption and is applying that in a Singapore context, and then the government applied its own context on this uh, person, and then you know she was prosecuted. I think it was more like it was it was something that was interesting to see that spread, right? I mean, because you know we obviously before that I listened to Britney Spears <laughs> from the states, right? So it's interesting, right? Me, but maybe it's just like me. I was just younger and I was just consuming stuff at a different level, right? So I was just kind of curious about that. Yeah, so I think there are two things to unpack there, right? The first is about what you said is the porousness to different cultures in Singapore and how that shapes our identity here. And the second then is about this concept of diversity, right? So I'll, I'll take the first one first. I personally think that when we look at some of the things that are happening globally, we can't copy-paste it here, right? And to an extent... Uh, that goes both ways, right? So, so for example, when they were talking about, if we think about the transgender student that recently wrote a letter to MOE and, and there's this whole like online saga around this, right? People were talking about identity politics and people were using terms like uh, safe spaces and all this kind of stuff. So, so those are language that comes from the West. Now, at the same time, terms like culture wars, terms like identity politics, those also come from the West. They come from the right side of the, of the political spectrum of the West. So when we think about these things, we need to recognize that actually both sides are importing from everywhere. There's also importation, mind you, coming from China, right? Coming from, from different parts of, of the world that are affecting different parts of society. So if you look at uh, one of the most overlooked pieces of Singapore culture right now is what's happening on the WhatsApp chats uh, of a lot of people who are more... Sinophilic, right? Meaning they, they are focused on Chinese culture and that is also shaping their language, right? Uh, about, about topics of unity, topics of like social security, topics of uh, military might, right? And so we also need to be conscious of, of cultural importation there. Now, of course, in general, what would be ideal is if as a society in ourselves, because we have a strong, unique identity of our own, we are able to keep boundaries, right? Meaning that in this case, porousness is actually not always good, right? Porousness is good to the extent that you can take what's good, you can critically analyze actually what aspects of these are valuable to our society and to adapt it, right? But to be too porous and to just take everything in wholesale without understanding the context in which it first originated, right? It's a bit dangerous. So when we were talking about call-out culture recently, right, or cancel culture recently with the Today article that came out, what was interesting was that they were talking about, oh, cancel culture needs to be canceled. But actually, if you go to the original origins of, of call-out culture, it was a way for the Black community to hold people accountable without necessarily bringing in the police, right? Without necessarily bringing in law enforcement. So they will be able to say, you are breaking this community's values and norms, and we want to hold you accountable. So we're going to call you out, but we're going to call you in, right? And bring you back into the fold. 
Uh, now, if you take that without understanding the context and you bring it here, what's happening is that cancel culture is just propagating uh, without bringing people back into the home. You call them out, but then you spit them out of the system, right? But then what happens when they're out of the system? They find groups. They find people that they can associate with, and then you have in-groups, out-groups, polarization. So, so I think to that extent, my whole view of porousness is that we need to be a very critical about what we're bringing in. But the key way to do that is to be very sure of who we are. Once we're sure of who we are, we can make sure our boundaries are clearer, right? What do we want to bring in and what do we not want to bring in? And I think the reason for that is self-admittedly because Singapore is still very young, right? We are sitting between East and West. Our cultures have been shaped by East and West for the past 50 years. And, and actually, to be honest, since much before, right? Because we are, we've always been a trade node. And so this, this will always be an issue. The topic of diversity, I think we've talked about a bit before, so I won't hop on too much about it. But I think this topic about porousness is, is, is useful to explore. I think what's interesting is that there's almost like a sharing a little bit about the chronology of it, right? I mean, the Singaporean citizen who absorbed the sovereign citizen ideology from the States may have stood out as maybe the, the one of the few people. And the truth is, I don't think it would have emerged anyway, whatever she believed, if it wasn't for the fact that she wasn't wearing a mask, right? So I don't think anybody broader scale it didn't matter to the justice system until you broke the law right in that sense but i think that's a chronology working backwards that you're talking about where we're seeing not just the geographic component from the east and the west in that sense but i think you say something like over the past 50 years right i might even make a claim i think if you go to the singapore museum it's probably been going on for like a thousand years right yeah yeah when i did the podcast what was fascinating is when you look at pre-colonial singapore we've always been influenced by by other cultures right and here's a suggestion jeremy right we take on identities that other people force onto us or we take on identities that are easily available online only when we are not sure of our own identity right or our own identity doesn't work in the system so in this case that lady was taking on that americanized identity because she couldn't deal with how she was being treated in the system. And so it goes back to the stuff that she has to deal with, right? So a lot of people rightly pointed out that maybe there are certain mental health issues, maybe there are certain core identity issues that she's working through. But even at a national level at Singapore, we take on American identities, we take on Chinese identities, we take on uh, all kinds of identities because we're not sure of who we are yet. Is it maybe who we are is to always be confused? <laughs> and the melting pot of all these various things for a thousand years and it will keep going like this and it was just kind of like put some stickers and kind of like roughly draw using pencil and dotted lines to be like this is southeast asia ish and this is singapore ish yeah i mean it could be right but of course i think we can move towards some, uh, an identity that maybe is more helpful for us as well <laughs> I think it's interesting, right? Because we, when you, we talk about this, it reminds me of a melting pot, obviously. I think we use is a loaded phrase these days. Uh, multiculturalism is another phrase. But I also think about it from a centrifugal versus centripetal system kind of perspective, right? Like, like as we you know see all this getting added and as we increase the velocity of discussion, I think there are things that are making us spin closer together and that things are making us spin further apart, right? I don't know if you have that sense, Rovic. Yeah, I think there are things that bring us together and there are things that uh, call out differences. But I go back to, to this concept of a healthy system, right? So 
a healthy system embraces diversity. A healthy system believes that if you have a different point of view, I can still hold you in my system, right? And what happens is that when systems don't, they don't regularly practice healing and belonging, right? Meaning to say, like, if you were to have a different point of view, how do I still hold you in my system? Then people will start to separate and move apart. And there are certain key boundaries at which this happens, right? So when you're talking about centripetal and centrifugal, basically we're talking about some of these boundaries at which people move apart and some of these boundaries at which people move together, right? So what we see at the national level here in Singapore is that a lot of the conversations that are happening are trying to focus on the, the boundaries that keep us together, right? So for example, food or our national day symbols and, and cultures and all this kind of stuff. But actually, here's a powerful phrase I learned. I learned it from, from a course I went to, but I'm pretty sure there's an original attribution that I'm not remembering, uh, which is in a system for someone to truly belong, one must first differentiate, right? If I only let you belong in the system because of the parts of yourself that are common between you and I, you will never feel like you actually belong because there's a part that you're not showing to me, right? And what happens is that rather than work within this system, you will move apart from me and you'll try to find other people who allow you to show that part of yourself, right? So that's why we see communities forming in Singapore and in the different parts of the world, right? But a healthy system says, I see the whole of you and you can still belong in the system. And they will practice the, the act of belonging, whether it's giving you legal recognition for certain things, whether it's creating spaces for you to, to exist, right? And that's a powerful idea. So I think the centripetal, centrifugal idea is, is helpful to the extent that it explains the dynamics, but it's not a place that we want to be. We want to be in a system where, where there's healing, belonging, and systems can be age up so that when someone shows their full self, the system adapts and brings them back into the fold. Interesting. Yeah, I think what I like about what you're sharing here is that it's okay to have that dissonance, right? And tension, right? Which is uh, for yourself, you're kind of saying differentiation versus being part of the whole. And I think it makes me also think like, you know, every society has a healthy balance between the centrifugal and the centripetal force, right? Which is you have to have both forces going around, right? Otherwise, there's no, um, there's no dynamic nature to it, right? Society has to live and breathe, otherwise it's, it's sterile, right? A society that tries to be too hard on its boundaries will always find it difficult to manage diversity. And we can see this in certain countries, right? So countries that are, are highly, highly, highly diverse, if they don't move their boundaries, they struggle a lot. Now, there are some countries where diversity has worked out a bit better. So I, I use the example of New Zealand. One of the things that New Zealand's had to struggle with is its history with the native Aboriginals, right? So the Maoris. And what they've managed to do is rather than to keep the boundaries too hard, they've said, actually, can we find a way to recognize that New Zealand has both? Right? New Zealand has both the settlers as well as the original Maoris. And what does it mean for inclusion to happen? Now, there's still journeys to go but they've found ways to manage that boundary and to open it up so that the identity in New Zealand is more pluralistic. But at the same time, there is a very unique New Zealand identity. It's a very unique Kiwi identity that's still there. Now, if you look at places like the US, what's happened is that they've struggled to move that boundary, but at the same time, there's so much diversity happening. So what people do is that they focus on communities, right? Communities are where people are able to show parts of themselves that they're not able to show in the main system. 
And you are starting to see that in Singapore. You are starting to see that because people are showing up, but they're not allowed to. The system saying, I cannot accept you as who you are. Right? I cannot accept your pain. And so part of the work I'm doing at Clubhouse, part of the work I'm doing in my podcast, and quite honestly, part of the work I'm doing in, in even my day job is to find ways to recognize how the system can be more agile and open up or basically redraw boundaries so that actually the diversity of Singapore can be fully embraced. Because once you do that, that's a powerful force. Diversity is immensely powerful when tapped onto. Yeah, it's, it's a real one, right? It reminded me of this story I always love, which is um, the ones who walk away from Omalas. I feel like you would know this, but it's by one of my favorite sci-fi authors, uh, Asala Kayla Gwyn. And I think she's talking about it's a short story, so it's very short. I really recommend everyone reads it. And, and I'm going to give a very big paraphrase uh, about it. <laughs> I say it. But basically, it's about how there is people enjoy life in this perfect city, perfect society, perfect weather, perfect infrastructure. But there is a dark secret to it, which is all of it hinges upon the fact that a child is basically scapegoated and kept in a jail cell and is just a miserable almost in a imprisonment and so basically like this is perfect city but everybody says that the wealth of the city is and everything is dependent on this this dark secret right and then everybody has to look at that secret at a certain age and then they either accept it and they stay in the city or they're given a choice and they can leave with no consequences and and walk to another city and i thought that was an interesting thing right which is like you know, we're talking about how we discuss, how we debate, how we communicate. But it's also like on the other axis, there's also like darkness and pain and grief, right? In that sense as well. Anyway, that's that's what came out to me when you mentioned that. Yeah, I would be interested to read that book, uh, that story. But it goes back to, to what we're talking about, right? About how we hold spaces and how we try to, to have conversations in Singapore and actually at any level right and if i was to if i was to think about the stuff i want to do it's to really be able to have better conversations and hold better spaces because i think there are so many things that are happening right now that actually a lot of it is just is just holding spaces now here's a distinction i want to draw as well right because i think when people think of dialogues and conversations they think of it as a very stationary process they say you know why are we just talking why can't we do stuff right why can't we move the system but actually the system the system doesn't move systems are, are social constructs right systems are mechanical or, or linguistic or legal at best right but they they don't move people move and people move only when they're mobilized emotionally and they can feel conviction to do stuff and when a group of people do stuff together then it's even more powerful but in order for that to happen you need to have awareness and you need to have conversations so i think we need to recognize that there's so much that can happen from such things and, and at the heart of it you know just helping to connect it back to the hidden good to sg explained to even the stuff I do at better.sg or on Clubhouse, it's really with that spirit. How do we hold spaces, create awareness, improve emotional mobilization, and then get people to move, right? Systems don't move, people do. I think that's beautiful. I mean, I think it's so true, right? Fixing things is fixing things, but how we discuss things and who we are is embedded within that trajectory. Wow, Rovik, I think we really had a, a wrapping things up here. Obviously, we had a long 
discussion and deep one into obviously your personal journey as well as you know podcasting and going deeper into explainer podcast digging deep and obviously a deep route on cancel culture and our discussion on how to make things better you know just last to wrap things up here i'm just kind of curious where were you 10 years ago and then that's a two-part question so where were you 10 years ago Rove? <laughs> uh 10 years ago i was 18 so i was just graduating from junior college i think i was a very different person i was part of i think i uh, because i wasn't sure of my identity i took on the identity of what people were telling me to be right which was focus on grades focus on on credentials and academic qualifications i think i was starting to discover my values and principles but i was really part of of a traditional system but of course i think it's very different from who i am now Second part is what advice would you give yourself then back then if you could travel back in time? I think the advice I give myself is to play around with the identity more, right? I think there's so much to discover about ourselves and we're all as individuals beautiful beings, right? We when we understand who we are uh, and when we understand what matters to us, we can do so much more with ourselves. And and I just wish that rather than play the game, play the system. I was able to discover who I was a lot better and just be proud of who I am right because now that I look back like I feel like I could have gone I would have been much happier back then if I if I was just comfortable with who I was. Awesome. Thank you so much Rovik for sharing some very beautiful thoughts. Thanks Jeremy. We enjoyed being here. Awesome Rovik. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.